0: Let's pray for these kids. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon their lives. Pray that you would anoint the, the leaders. Even more than that, Lord, I pray that you would anoint the parents. God, that we would disciple our children to become like you. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, I'm just going to say this. You guys know I, I can't be fake in any way, right? It's what you love and hate about me. Um, (laughs) I'm just, I'm fragile today. I'm fragile. Um, I don't have to go into detail, but you know, your kids grow up and they lose their innocence. And uh, it's hard. Parenting's a hard, hard thing. Uh, That's why it was so great to see these kids up here today. you know, when they're young, you think you have control And you think everything's manageable, and then they get older and it becomes unmanageable. And so, God, I just thank you that you are on the throne. And that when our lives become unmanageable, you're real. And you're the king. And we bless you. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, we are going to be maybe doing another trip to Israel this summer. I'd like to just put that out there. We had uh, a phenomenal experience last year. And uh, if you're wondering why we do this, first of all, what it is, it's, it's a two-week trip. And this is not a tour This is an intense experience in the land. Um, It's an intense experience with God. It's an intense experience on the trail. We hike 6 to 10 miles a day, and it's sometimes in heat of 115 to 120 degrees. It's because of that an intense experience in God's word. As we're hiking, we're also, we got our Bibles, and we're just learning the story in its context. It's an intense experience with the people you're with. And so this isn't just something that's out there for anyone who wants to go on a tour to Israel. This is for people who want an an experience, a life-changing experience with God, with a community of people who are going for, for God in the land where God tells his story. And so, uh, if if that's something that you'd want to be a part of, you can get information uh, at the information table about that. Um, yeah, here's just a couple of pictures. Scroll through these kind of fast. <laughs> we had so much fun; it was it was incredible. Besides just being in the place where the story happens, to be with 30 or 40 other people in that kind of intense setting, um, it's just life changing. And so, if, if this would be something that you would sense, and that's, that's a picture of the kind of terrain that we're hiking sometimes. So, that's that. You can get the information. It'll be uh, the end of uh, June and into the first part of July. So, that's that. Okay. Enough pictures. The desert. How beautiful. Love it. Okay. Uh, continuing our journey through Matthew's gospel. So, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10, which is where we are today. you were here last week, we looked at Matthew 8 and 9, and hopefully something that just is resounding in your mind as you think about Matthew 8 and 9 is just the authority of Jesus. Because in that section, Matthew lists 10 miracles. And I ask myself, is there any coincidence that it's 10? 10! As Jesus is unleashing this new exodus as the new Moses. And so Matthew shows us these ten miracles, I think, to correspond with the ten plagues. And if you know your, your, your biblical story, this is what, how the Exodus in the Old Testament is described. I think this sentence in Deuteronomy 26 sums it up. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. And if you know anything about that Exodus, the first Exodus, that was a war on evil. Because each one of those plagues that God unleashed, it was an all-out attack on Egypt's gods. It was Yahweh versus the God of the Nile. It was Yahweh versus the sun God. It was Yahweh versus the divine Pharaoh. And God won. And he redeemed his people with an outstretched arm with great terror with signs and wonders. (laughs) Now look at Jesus. He's unleashing signs and wonders. There's great terror and fear. And his authority extends from everything like leprosy to blindness to the storm to the demonic, even death itself. And here's the deal. Don't just see Jesus as the new Moses. He is more than that. He's Yahweh. He came to make war on evil. He is sending out the chaos. Bless you, Jesus. He sends out the chaos. He says, Let there be clean, let there be still. He's undoing the curse. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are made clean, the dead are raised to new life. Jesus is recreating the world. This is new creation. Have to see that. Now, this morning, we're going to look at an important thread that runs through Matthew's gospel. I don't think I can begin to share with you the importance of this thread. And please stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew 10. Wish we had time to read all of this, but I assume you're going to study this this week, so I'm going to just pick some passages. I'll start with verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Verse 5, The twelve Jesus sent out the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any other town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons freely as you have received. Freely give. And then going down to verse 21, or verse 17, Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils. They will flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings and, and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you'll say or how to say it, because at that time, it will be given to you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit Speaking through you, brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes in all his glory. A student is not above his teacher, nor, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. The head of the house has been called Beelzebub. How much more then will the members of his household? Do not be afraid of them. And then going down to verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring grace or peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he receives me. And he receives me, receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. You can be seated. And look at this thread of discipleship that runs through Matthew's gospel. Verse one, it says, and Jesus called His 12 disciples. Here's my question. What's a disciple? Do you know? Does something really clear come to your mind right now when I ask that question? What is a disciple? See, I think most of us, even though you're quiet right now, would probably assume that we know what a disciple is And I think most of us, too, would assume that we are disciples. However, in my opinion, we are so far from having a biblical understanding of discipleship. And I think part of that is because we have extracted discipleship out of its original biblical setting And we've watered it down with this Western paradigm of what we think discipleship is. So I'm going to start with some background this morning. I think this is important. And I want to start with this. Throughout the Old Testament story, the spiritual life of Israel is centered upon what? The temple, right? The tabernacle. That's their place of worship. That's the place where God's raw Shekinah presence dwelt. That's the place where God's people met with God, where priests cleaned them up so they could approach God, where sacrifices were made that would reconcile them to God. The temple or the tabernacle was the centerpiece to their relationship with God. But what you have then at the end of the Old Testament is the temples destroyed and God's people are exiled hundreds of miles away from their land. So the question becomes then, what do we do? How do we draw close to God? There's no temple, there's no priest, there's no sacrifice. Well, they looked at some texts. Texts like... Huh. I know they're in here somewhere. Maybe not. Well, I'll tell you what text they are. Uh, Proverbs fifty-one verse sixteen, where David says, uh, "The thing that you look at, O God, is 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 not my sacrifice. The thing you look at is my broken and contrite heart." In, in Proverbs twenty-one verse three or in Jeremiah 7, verse 22 and 23, or in Hosea 6, verse 6, over and over there again, it says, you, you don't really concern yourself, O oh God, with our sacrifice, but what you concern yourself with is our obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. So they read texts like this, and they shifted their relationship from God from sacrifice To obedience. The Torah replaced the temple. God's word became the holy of holies. So that when the book was open, it was more than just words on a page, but in their minds, God is here. When we read this book, we are encountering the raw Shekinah presence of God. So then it's in this context where the synagogue appears. Now synagogue, if you read your Old Testament, it doesn't exist. But by the time of Jesus, every village has a synagogue. Even the Apostle Paul can travel throughout the Roman Empire and find a synagogue. Now synagogue simply means to gather. Because it's God's people gathered around God's Torah. So the synagogue then became their house of worship. It was the house of Torah. And it became the centerpiece of their walk in relationship with God. Now listen, the synagogue was not just their house of worship. It also functioned as their school. Because to the Jew, the highest form of worship is the study of God's word. So the house of of worship, the synagogue, is also a house of study. I want you to hear what the the, the famous Rabbi Hillel says a generation before Jesus to describe the educational process that happened in the synagogue with Jewish children. He says at five years old... One is fit for the scripture. At 10 years, the Mishnah, which is the rest of the Old Testament, and the rabbis' applications of it. At 13, for the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud, which now you're ready to make rabbinic interpretations. At 18, the bridal chamber. At 20, pursuing a vocation. At 30, for authority, where you're able to teach others. So I want you to hear this. At the age, or at the time of Jesus, from age 5 until 10, probably the ages of those kids that were up here this morning, boys and girls went to bet Sefer. Bet means house, Sefer means book, house of the book, to synagogue. Here a child not only learned Torah, they memorized large chunks of it. I know some of you right now are thinking, there's no way that happened. Let's remember a couple of things. First of all, not every family had 20 Bibles floating around in their house. In fact, each town barely had their own copy of Torah, which was housed in the synagogue. And that copy alone was worth the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the way a person had their own copy of Torah is they hid it in their heart. They memorized it. Now, right now, just think about how much you have memorized. You have stuff memorized. Think about all the songs right now you know by heart. Think about all the lines in movies you know by heart. Think about all the statistics of sports tar- stars that you have in your heart. See, it's not that we don't hide things in our heart. But in that day, they didn't have pop music. They didn't have movies. They didn't have sports. Their Pop 40 was the text. Their heroes were the people in the text and the people who taught them the text. In fact, Church Father Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin in the 300s, came to this part of the world so that he could learn Hebrew. You know what he said? He said, there doesn't exist any Jewish child who doesn't know the entire Bible by heart. Okay, from age 11 to 12, then you went to bet midrash. Midrash means interpretation. So this would be the house of interpretation. You're now starting to study more complicated interpretations of Torah. After this, the girls got married, which was soon after their first menstruation. Let me say something about menstruation in that world. Menstruation was a girl's rite of passage into womanhood. And I think we can learn a lot from this culture. Because think about how we view menstruation. Think about the things we say. To us, it's a curse. In that world, it was a badge of highest honor a party would be thrown for that girl because everyone viewed the womb as the most sacred space in the world because that's the place where the finger of God goes and creates life. At 12 or 13, a boy had his coming of age ceremony as well. What's it called? Anybody know? Bar Mitzvah. This was a boy's rite of passage into manhood, and you know, when I I learn this stuff, I'm just like, do we have rites of passage today? We have 30 and 35-year-olds who don't know they're men and women yet, because we don't have rites of passage. Bar mitzvah, bar means son, mitzvah means commandment, means son of the commandment which meant that the boy could now experience his first Passover in Jerusalem. And at this point in the game, that 12 or 13-year-old is treated like a man. And I'm going to tell you something. This still holds true today because when we lived in Israel for six months, it, it struck me how men treated Gabe. How they talked to him, how they handled him. They looked eyeball to eyeball and treated him like a man. Okay, now at this stage, the young men would begin a trade with their fathers and they'd still continue bet midrash until 15. Then they were done. But now this is important. At 15, a few of the elite students would continue their study of Torah by leaving home and studying with a famous rabbi. Now, what's a rabbi? A rabbi is someone who devoted their whole life to knowing Torah, to live Torah, so they could teach Torah. And you can't begin to imagine the passion that these rabbis had towards Torah. Their life was consumed with it. Now, in the New Testament, these guys are called the teachers of the law or the Torah teachers. Oftentimes, they were tent makers. Sometimes, they they had to depend on the hospitality and gifts of others. They were itinerant, meaning they traveled from place to place. They taught in synagogues. They taught in homes. They sometimes taught outdoors. They taught in villages or in the temple. Now, a student, one of these elite students of a rabbi, was called a Talmud in Hebrew. Talmudim is the plural. We translate this word disciple. A Talmud was a student of the rabbi. He would learn everything that the rabbi knew about the text. In fact, he would memorize his rabbi's teachings and all his rabbi's explanations of the text. He would learn every nuance that that rabbi had towards the text. Listen, a Talmud was so much more than someone who learned what the rabbi knows. That's a student. And see, in our world, a student attains to know what the teacher knows, either for the grade, to complete the class, to get the degree, to please the teacher. And this, in my opinion, is what we have reduced discipleship to. About getting the right information. Filling our heads with knowledge. But a Talmud looked at his rabbi and said, I don't want to know just what you know. I want to become everything you are. I want to become just like you. And so to do this, a Talmud left everything. I want you to hear that. He left everything. They gave up everything. They gave up their livelihood. They left their homes. They left their works so they could be with their rabbi 24-7, 365. Sometimes it would be up to one year, two years, three years, four years, five years so they could sit at his feet, learn his words, watch his life. They wanted to be with him every waking moment so they could become like him. And this was an all-consuming, total life commitment that talmud gave up everything because they so badly wanted to become just like the rabbi. In fact, I think the difference between our notion of discipleship and this notion of a talmud is—you know—I like to run. I run three, four, maybe five times a week. When I go out and run, it's for about a half hour, maybe 35 minutes. And I think that's what we call discipleship. Three, four, maybe five times a week for a half hour. We'll spend time with Jesus. A tell is not just someone who likes to run. But they're training for the Boston Marathon. And they're training for it, not just so they can run it, but so they can win it. That's a Talmud. In fact, this relationship between a rabbi and a Talmud was so intense that it's described as a father-son relationship. This is why Paul calls Timothy my son. My true son. In fact, in our first. Corinthians uh, 4. Can't believe I took all the time this morning to print out all those texts and I don't have them. Can someone look 1 Corinthians 4 up right now? Verse 15, little Bible drill. Good, stand and read it out loud. Did you hear what Paul's saying? You have ten thousand guardians in Christ, but you have one Father. I fathered you. I discipled you. Keep going. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I'm your Father. You're the tell me imitate me. Everything about me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Listen to what he says next. (laughs) Sorry about this, Bob. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) For this reason, I am sending you to Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Okay. Okay. He will remind you of my way of life. There you go. This is all discipleship. Therefore, to help you along in this, in in, in being disciples, I'm going to send you one one of my ultimate disciples, my son, Timothy. And you watch him, and you become like him. Listen, Jesus is clearly plugging himself into this system, because seven different groups of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, other people call Jesus or address him as rabbi. Now look at Matthew 10, verse 1. Just give me a little bit here as I turn back there. He called his twelve to him, and he gave them authority. He calls the twelve. For what purpose? Well, look at verses 24 and 25. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Jesus called these 12 so that they could be like him. And I love how Mark puts this in, in Mark 3, verse 14. It's, it's him describing this same part of the, the, the gospel story where he says, And Jesus appointed twelve so they could what? Does anybody know? Be with him. I mean, let that sink in. Jesus appointed these twelve for the simple purpose that they would be with him, and for three to three and a half years, Jesus is going to pour his very life into these 12 guys. These 12 guys are going to spend every waking moment with him, and the classroom is going to be the storm. it's going to be going to the other side. it's going to be taking them to Nazareth. It's going to be going into the temple and watching him preach. It's going to be going up into um, the Decapolis and seeing his power to heal. I'm telling you, these guys are going to watch Jesus like a hawk. They're going to watch him from the way he eats breakfast to how he uses the restroom. They're, they're going to watch how he spends his time. They're going to watch how he walks, how he gets up, how he teaches, how he heals, the way he spends hours in prayer, how he interacts with the big shots, how he treats the little guy, the least of these, the poor. And I love how Jesus says this. He says, everything I got from my father. Everything I got from my father, I gave to you. Now, in Jesus' day, a rabbi normally did not pick his Talmudim because a Talmud picked his rabbi, much like a kid today might pick a college. Now, remember, this is only for the elite students. They had to be good enough to get in, especially to come under a great rabbi, and Jesus is the greatest. That's how the Sermon on the Mount ends, by saying, wow. Who gave this man this authority? He doesn't teach us like our other Torah teachers do. But see, Jesus breaks with this tradition. Rather than having the Talmud pick the rabbi, Jesus is the rabbi who picks the Talmud. In John 15, verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now ask yourself, what kind of guys did Jesus pick? What does it tell you that these guys were fishermen? Tax collectors. They probably didn't cut it. They're not the A students. More importantly, when Jesus called them, what did they do? What was their response to Jesus' call? Well, Peter, James, and Andrew, and Philip, they dropped their nets. Matthew left his tax booth. And I think sometimes when we read these stories, we kind of think to ourselves, oh, these poor guys, they have to drop everything. They have to drop their whole livelihood to follow Jesus. Listen to me. Imagine if growing up your dream was to play in the NBA. And one day you're out in the parking lot, and a limo pulls up. And out of that limo steps Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan says, I want you to become like me. Let's go. Are you going to say, I don't know? (laughs) See, what's Jesus calling them to? He's calling them to give up everything so that in giving up everything these guys could be with him and in being with him they could become like him and Jesus is still calling people and his call is still the same when he calls a person it's a call to give up everything It's the call to give up everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, a book that I read in college that had a profound impact on my life, he says, the call of Jesus begins with the call to abandon all attachments to the world. And we see this as we look at the threat of discipleship in Matthew's gospel, in in, in Matthew chapter 8, 19 through 22. Then then a Torah teacher, a rabbi actually comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple, another tell me, said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Or how about in the text that we read today in verses 37 and 38 anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and anyone who loves his son or daughters more than me is not worthy of me and anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do we have the guts to hear what Jesus is, is saying? Do you have the guts to, 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 to let this sink in? Because it's the call for us to hand over our life, our dreams, our comforts, our attachments. It's the call for us to give up living life for me. Like Bonhoeffer says later in his book, he says when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. And see, for many of us right now, we're feeling like the rich man, and and we're walking away sad. I remember a young lady in my ministry years ago when I was in Chicago, and she described the call of God in her life. She said it happened when she stood at the corner of Wells and Division in downtown Chicago. And if anyone knows what that is, that's one of the, or was in the day, one of the biggest slums in our land. She said, I stood there with my newly acquired MBA and all my dreams before me. And she said, as I stood there, I heard Jesus call. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And she said at that moment, I literally said these words out loud. My life is over. I am done living for me. And she said, I dropped everything. To live in in one of the most impoverished, crime-infested places in our nation. And she said, in that moment, I never out more free and more joy. And it hasn't left me since. See, the call of Jesus goes against everything our culture screams at us. Because the whole premise of the American dream, which we've been taught since we were young, is premised on this. It's on gaining the world and finding yourself, finding your true self. So this idea of abandoning our attachments to the world and giving up living life for me, it makes us sad. But look at verses 38 and 39 when Jesus says, And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That word for life there in, in the Greek is suke. And really, suke, which we get the word psychology, uh, could better be translated one's true self. So think about what Jesus is saying. He says the way you're going to save or find your true self is by Losing yourself for me in the gospel. See, I love how Bonhoeffer puts this in the cost of discipleship because he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says cheap grace is what's what's running rampant in our churches today and killing it. He says cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without total life commitment to Christ. It's grace without a price. It's grace without a cost. He says, this is costly grace. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. It's the gift which must be asked for. It's the door at which a man must knock. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls calls us to follow Jesus Christ. He says, it's costly because... It costs a man his life. It's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies a sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his own son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. He says, costly grace is the treasure hid in the field, and to attain it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant to attain will sell all his good goods. He says, it's the kingdom of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to sin. He says, it's the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And for the me of Jesus, This is never, and I have to. I have to do that. It's like, you're calling me? It's I want to. I want to. Because the same reason why we can give up anything is because we find something worth more than the thing we're giving up. And the reason a Talmud of Jesus can abandon all worldly attachments is because they have found something worth losing everything for. And this is the kind of response that the call of Jesus demands nothing less. And see, until we respond to him this way, we're not worthy of him. And we're fooling ourselves and calling ourselves disciples. We are. Are you a disciple? How much do you want him? How much of your life consists of seeking And knocking and asking. How much time do you spend with him? How badly right now do you want to become like him? That's a disciple. Now listen to this. When it comes to Jesus' mission... Don't see discipleship as something that Jesus is just doing on the side because it's central to his mission, which is the kingdom of heaven. Because what he's going to do with these 12 men is he's going to take them and he's going to make them into little Christs. And so what we need to do is we need to connect Jesus unleashing of the kingdom of heaven with Jesus making disciples. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Look at verse 23. Same thing. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He's talking the kingdom. He's unleashing and demonstrating the kingdom. What's sandwiched in between? (laughs) The calling of his first disciples. Look at chapter 9, right before our text here. On Jesus' calling the disciples. In verse 35, Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. He's teaching the kingdom. He's unleashing the kingdom. What happens next? The fields are ripe for harvest, says Jesus, but there are no labors. So Jesus called 12 disciples. now listen to this in verse 1. Just reflect on this. He called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority. Now when I read a verse like this, my curiosity goes way up. Because I want to know what kind of authority he gave them. I'll tell you what kind of authority Jesus gave them. He gave them his authority. Think about his authority in verses uh, chapter 9 or 8 and 9. And you say, how do you know it's that authority? Because look at verse 8 of chapter 10. He says, as you go, preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out the demons. Freely you have received the kingdom and freely you unleash it. So now my next question is this. On what basis do they get this authority? Why do they get it? Well, does Jesus just kind of go, poof. Now you have my authority. Here's the cape. Where's the cape? Or where are my tassels? (laughs) No. No. See, this clause about he gave them authority should bring us right back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates the world. Because when God creates Adam and Eve, he gave them authority. And Psalm 8 flushes this out. All things have been put under their feet. God handed over to Adam and Eve the the keys of his kingdom to rule and to subdue it. I mean, their position in the universe, it was awesome. They were in charge. God gave them authority. On what basis did Adam and Eve have this authority with the creation? According to Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. That word image there, literally, if you wanted to translate it the most literal way, literal way possible, it would be in, this, in, in a statue Or an idol that looks exactly like God. They are little replicas of God. In fact, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He said, if we could see Adam and Eve uh, before they sinned and before the fall, if we saw them, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship them. And see, when, when all creation looked at Adam and Eve, it was as if they were beholding God himself. But see, all of this was lost at the curse. God's image in us was severely marred. Do you see what Jesus is doing with his Talmudim? He is making little replicas of himself, little Christs. He's recreating them. He's transforming them. He's restoring the image of God in them. And he's doing this through discipleship. It's through discipleship that God is recreating a fallen humanity and restoring these 12 men to be all that God intended them to be, for them to be godlike, for lack of a better way of describing it. Bearing God's image and reflecting God to the world. How is Jesus doing this? Discipleship. Can I ask you a question? Does your life have authority right now? I'm not talking about the kind of power that comes from popularity or position or wealth. I'm talking about the most authoritative power there is. It's the authority that comes from a life lived with Jesus. From a life that follows Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. Acts 4 verse 13. These disciples are are brought before the elites of their day. And I love how this is put. When they saw the confidence, the confidence of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, just ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Are you a disciple? How much time do you spend with your rabbi? How much of your life right now is consumed with following him, and pursuing him, and seeking him. Jesus unleashes his kingdom through his disciples. In fact, I love this. In chapters 8 and 9, which Neil looked at last week, um, essentially those chapters could be summed up with this clause. Jesus is sending out the chaos He is. He's just sending it out. In fact, there are two Greek words that are used over and over again in those two chapters. The words apostoleo and ekbalo. Apostoleo is... The word for which we get apostle. It means simply to be sent. Ekbalo is the word for cast out. Because that's what Jesus is doing in these two chapters. He's casting out the chaos. He's casting out the death, the blindness, the sickness. He's sending out the demons. He's sending out the chaos. Now look at chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him. And he gave them authority to drive out, to ekbalo. And it's not just there, but then it's also down in verse 7, or verse 8, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse those who have leprosy, to drive out, to ekbalo, the demonic. For freely you have been uh, received, freely you will give, because you're blessed to be a blessing. You've received the kingdom, now you unleash it. With my authority. And not only is Ekbalo in this in this thing, but also verse five, these twelve, Jesus sent out. He apostolate oh, He apostles them. Verse sixteen. He says, I am sending you out, I am apostoling you like sheep among wolves. He took these 12. He poured his life into them. So they could become like him. So he could send them out. To give him the authority. To act ballo, To cast out chaos. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is sending out the chaos by sending his 12 into the chaos. The way Jesus is saying, let there be clean and let there be still. The way he is recreating the world, he's doing it through disciples. He is entrusting the keys of the kingdom to those who have given their life to him. To becoming like him. You know what church history tells us about these guys? Peter made it to Rome. Where he was crucified upside down. Andrew made it to Greece. Where he is severely scourged and tied by ropes on an X shaped cross and hung two days there to expire. James, as we know about, was beheaded with sword. John was, uh, made it to Ephesus. At one point, he was thrown in boiling oil, but he was unharmed. He's the only one who died of natural causes, and he was buried near Ephesus. Philip made it to Syria, to Hierapolis, where he was crucified. Bartholomew, or or Nathaniel as we call him, was beaten, flayed, and crucified head down. Thomas made it to Greece where he was burned in an oven. Matthew made it to Ethiopia. That's the Matthew we're talking about. He was axed to death. James was thrown down from the temple tower, but he wasn't dead yet, so they clubbed him to death. Thaddeus made it to Greece where he was crucified. Simon the Zealot made it to Britannia possibly where he was crucified. Matthias made it to Jerusalem where he was stoned and beheaded. Paul who was later added to this 12 too was beheaded. And you tell me these guys didn't become like Jesus. They did. And these 12 changed C.S. Lewis says, it's easy to think the church has a lot of different objectives. Objectives like education, building buildings, missions, holding services. But he says the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. And if they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. To me, this is why the church is impotent today. We are good at attracting crowds. We are horrible at discipleship. I'm convinced if 12 this morning could become like Jesus, 12 could still change the world. Are you one of the 12? If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Let's pray. Help us, God. You have laid out such a beautiful, inspiring method, for lack of a better term. In many ways, it's so simple, God. We just drop all attachments to the world. In 24-7, 365, we spend with you. Seeking you, loving you, following you. And as we follow you, God, you're always going to send us into those places where you go. Into the chaos. We're going to go right in there. God help us today. To be disciples. Real biblical followers of Jesus. For your glory.